because I always do an introduction before the interview, and and now it's my pleasure to have so and so as a guest, and and I listen to other podcasts, and it's always nice when there's kind of a more uh, I don't know, gradual lead into the interview. So, uh, you know, you know, you know, you could do, you could, uh, you could say, I regret to inform you and my condolences that we have Sherry Chung on our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Musician Toolkit. This is episode number 51. My name is David Lane. I'm your host, and it is great to be with you once again. So in full disclosure, I am in a new location. I am surrounded by clutter at the moment, and I have taken upon myself what some people are laughing as as an impossible task, and that is a goal of by the end of the year, in other words, by the end of this month, taking everything out of a box and making a proper decision with it to throw it away, to donate it, or to keep it. And if we keep it, put it in the right place. Unfortunately, it's it's really hard to do that and other things as well. But one of those other things that I definitely want to do is I want to make sure that each Monday there's a new episode of the Musician Toolkit. And the main part of this episode has been ready for a little over a week. I just needed to record the introduction and the outro for this episode. Also, full disclosure, this is the first time I've recorded any portion of this podcast in my new location. There's a lot of perks that I like about it. There are also a few things that are disadvantages compared to the old location, at least as it pertains to trying to record some things. And that is that this is right in the heart of a city. My old location was basically in the country. It was in a rural area in a neighborhood, but, you know, very quiet. We've traded a quiet neighborhood for a vibrant neighborhood. There's a lot of exciting things around where we are, but there's traffic going down the street all the time. We also found out the hard way that we are along the route that is most commonly taken by a nearby station for EMS vehicles. I'm not sure how much of this is going to show up on the recording. I know over time I'll come up with the right filters to edit most of it out, but that just may be uh, something that I have to deal with from this point going forward. So anyways, all of that out of the way, the interview that I'm going to share with you was actually recorded in my old location uh, about three weeks ago. And I'm talking today to Sherry Chung. Sherry Chung is a film composer. Great many of her successes to date have come from her television scoring, and mostly for streaming series, but also some things for network television. Just for things that have had a season this year, She has scored the music for Gremlins, Secrets of the Mogwai, Based on a True Story, Kung Fu, Riverdale. She's also worked on series that were produced by DC, including Supergirl, Batwoman, and more. We have a great conversation. You know, it helps that we have something in common and that we talk about at the beginning. But... uh, It's not just a celebration of her career that we're going to be talking about here. What we do in the Musician Toolkit is we talk about uh, a lot of the nuts and bolts that uh, that equip you to do a career well. And Sherry shares some things that I think will be most helpful, including the importance of getting a general background in composing, no matter what kind of field you want to go into, whether that's film composing or video game composing, or writing music for theater. And it's something that we 
that we agree on. And also how if you are doing this kind of music, you should really prioritize the study of orchestration. So there's these things and there's more, a lot of stuff we're going to talk about. So let me go ahead and share this wonderful conversation that I had with Sherry Chung. I feel like we should start off with, um, you know, the, uh, the elephant in the room, that being Jacksonville University. We both attended there, uh, but not at the same time. And I feel like I just missed you. I graduated um, May 1997. So did I, I think I just missed you, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, because I started in 97. Yeah. I have a memory of some somebody. I know I know it was it was a woman who called me and just got my name and wanted to know more about the composition program at JU. And I don't remember if it was you, but it was somebody coming in that year. So if it wasn't you, it was somebody it, else. It had to have been me because my entire time there, I was the only to my recollection, I was the only female composition major in the yeah. entire like four years that I was there. So it had to have been me. So, so. <laughs> so that, that was it. We spoke <laughs> doing the math That's, 26 years ago. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, that's that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's so funny because I, I just met recently met somebody who, um, also attended Jacksonville University, but long after you and I. Uh, in fact, like recently, you know. And I, I was like, oh, okay, that's that's really cool, you know. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, you know, so it's a little school, but uh, you know, I as I tell everybody, I I think personally of all the teachers I ever had, I I can't think of a single individual had more influence in my life than Dr. William Shermer. And it's just, you know, and, you know, and thankfully, I I, I feel like sometimes I talk about him, I'm talking about him past tense. He's still, he's still alive and kicking, (laughs) which is great. I I didn't want to be untoward, but I wanted to, I I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure. I got a Christmas card from last year. So, so he he was good as far as that. I I feel like Facebook would blow up if if something happened, you know, because I still, keep in touch with a lot of uh, alumni but uh yeah still still writing an absurd amount of symphonies every year you know <laughs> so lucky. that's actually amazing to hear and in fact to your point um I, I i did facebook did blow up when when dr john carlson um yeah. had passed and and that that would actually that that one actually very it, it was greatly saddened by that because i i was also very influenced by by Dr. Carlson. Um, I sang in the Chamber Singers, and um, yeah. you know, and, and that that was that was that was a tough one too. Um, I, yeah, but that's great to hear about do, uh, Dr. Shermer. Uh, I did. You know, I was an or- orchestra band person. I played French horn, so I, I didn't do choir. But you know, the great thing about Ju is if you said I'd like to write a piece for some for something you could. And, um, you know, I wrote a piece for the chamber singers and got to come in and conduct it. And he took me aside for like maybe a one or two minute conducting lesson. And I feel like I got more out of that than any conducting instruction I received. It was just amazing. It's like, I still, still remember everything he said in those two minutes. It was just, it was great. A few years ago, Joseph Haygood. I don't, and that was kind of unexpected. Oh, yeah. 
Now, jo- Joseph, Doctor Haig, was he was he a doctor? Yeah, Mr. I, I think he was. Doc- I think he was. Yeah, I'm not sure actually. I, I don't. Th- he wasn't a doctor at the time, but I heard him referred to it by it later on. So he may have gotten his doctorate, but. Yeah, I don't oh, know. That, I'm so sad to hear that. Yeah, Dr. Haygood or Mr. Haygood was um, uh, was also very influential. He, he, you know, I, I was, I was a pretty snotty little freshman. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, maybe, maybe a, a few more years of snottiness after, but I was just, you know, and I just remember him, him being, him being both, um, you know, as I think a lot of the professors were, it was like they they had seen so many snotty little kids come in and and mature. And I feel like, you know, they, they never seemed to hold it against me. You know, he didn't ever seem yeah. to hold it against me. But um, oh, that's that's unfortunate. But, yeah, I remember I remember when we had, when we took all the instrument lessons, you know, for the composition program. And I, I did all right with oboe, but when it came to the bassoon, mm-hmm. for some reason, that just seemed to be an instrument that I really took to. Now, that's not to say for any of your bassoon player listeners out there that I am any kind of bassoonist <laughs> whatsoever, but it seemed to be an instrument that I was like able to pick up on. And had I, you know, maybe continued with it, I could at least say I, I can play bassoon, but I remember him him being very excited about that and, you know, giving me, you know, the, the Fantasia's, you know, the, right. <laughs> dun, 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 you know, just kind of just encouraging me to, to, to really play that and just kind of just, you know, really explore that. That was fun. Yeah. The, the double read saved, saved me in that class. Cause, uh, I, I, it took about two weeks with flute before I felt like I wasn't going to pass out. <laughs> <laughs> it just, it, I was just amazed. Uh, but, the double reeds resemble brass embouchure more. So it's like, I was comfortable with that. Whereas like clarinet, you can't put enough, you can't put too much pressure on the mouth. So it just is squeaked all the time and flute. You don't use any pressure at all. You just have to blow at the right angle. And uh, yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah, the, the double reeds were great and it was great uh, having professor Haygood. Um, Just a lot of quality teachers. I mean, what I've told people is, uh, you know, the strength of the school was that you had quality instructors, but you also had a sense of freedom. Um, the school I went to after that is a little bit more renowned, but not as much freedom. I mean, one of the things they told you, because they have a they have an office, you know, I mean, when I was there, I was um, I was one of the highest in demand pianists, uh, for, for like, if someone needed a pianist for a party or wedding or something like that, they just called the office, spoke to, to Jeannie and she gave him my name or maybe a couple of others. And, uh, and that was good. Uh, I wasn't a piano major. I was a composition major, but when I went to the school after that, they, they were like, you have to be a piano major for them to give you piano gigs. It's like, if someone calls wanting a, uh, a film score, you know, we'll, we'll give you their name. And I'm like, yes, I'm sure they're going to call wanting a student film score. <laughs> Actually it did happen one time, but, but it was, you know, a different story, but they didn't call that office, but it was just one of those, the theme was stay in your lane, you know, mm. uh, which they, they have produced quite a, quite a few good specialists. Well, um, you know, I'll come back to, to Jay a little bit. I want, I want to talk some nuts and bolts. So, you know, I, I should say this every so often for new listeners. So that so the Musician Toolkit, 
Um, you know, I certainly want to celebrate successes of musicians, but I really want to get into the nuts and bolts of musicianship and how it works and the things that you've learned, not only as a composer, but as someone who's studied music theory, someone who's learned instruments, someone who's studied music history, like the things that you found value in. And of course, you know, along with that for, for professional musicians is, uh, business skills, marketing, networking, and, you know, so, so I like to talk about any of that as we come to it, but we should probably start with, um, when did you know you wanted to be a composer and, you know, and what, was it always film music or was there some other kind of music you got into first? Yeah, so I started as a classically trained pianist. So when I went to JU, I was a I was a um, composition major with a piano principal, but I was not a piano major. Mm-hmm. And I, I started when I was really young, maybe about four or five, taking piano lessons and knew that I wanted to like really learn the technique and stuff like that. As much as you know what that is at five years old, <laughs> I mean, I, I I was no prodigy, so it wasn't like you know. I mean, I I, I was very gifted for my age, but mm-hmm. I was not any kind of prodigy. And I and I just say that because it's like it's. Yeah, it, it was impressive. And then I say like my age caught up with my talent, you know, <laughs> just right. like by the time I got to, you know, high, uh, maybe high school or certainly college, it's like, mm, it's not as impressive. Like you're going to have to really, really, really be a lot more, um, you know, just talented. But I, 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 I realized too that, you know, I, I did want to write music. I, I kind of realized I did not want to be a classical pianist or classical performer. I loved learning the technique, but I didn't, I knew that the performance aspect of the classical part wasn't going to be for me. And I think I just want, I just was more creative and I, I started writing songs and I would sing. So kind of using my voice as like another instrument. Sometimes it, sometimes it was songs with lyrics. Sometimes it was songs with gibberish. Sometimes it was just another, like a melody because I ran out of hands, you know, kind of thing. Right. And you know, and it's important to say, and you get this, it's important to say to your listeners and remind listeners that back in the day, we didn't have this computers and these, I mean, of course we had computers. It's not like the world was in black and white, but, <laughs> but you know, we didn't, we didn't really have, you know, that at our fingertips. That was a really, really expensive thing to be able to do. Um, you know, and so the idea for me of like learning, you know, so pencil paper became, you know, the way that I would write my ideas down, but I didn't really, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like texting, you know, or writing by hand now, which if anybody even does that anymore, your, your brain moves faster than what your body can actually write down. And it's it's kind of the same thing with, with writing pencil paper with, with, music, it was kind of, it was really, I I found it really frustrating, but in any case, songwriting, and then that led to film composing. And to answer your question, it kind of really was always, I mean, songwriting and film composing, I guess, you know, but I saw Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, score by Michael Kamen. And it was like, that was what I wanted to do. And I had known about music score or, you know, movie scores, but I had never really paid attention until that movie. And I had known about, you know, composers, I think, because, you know, we are, excuse me, because we're, you know, we're, we're, if we're, if you're studying music, you're studying the composers, you're studying the people who wrote the music. So you're aware that there is an occupation called a composer. Um, but in terms of it being film and television, it was definitely more once I saw that movie and that just kind of changed everything. So, and that was when I was about 12 or 13. So I'm still in middle school, getting into high school at that point. Um, you know, yeah, so I'm not, I wouldn't say that I'm studying it formally at this point because nobody around really knows how to, 
to teach that. You're not really learning that at that point. So um, that's where kind of that's where Ju came in, I guess, because that's where I decided I was going to study the more formal training. There weren't that many schools or many programs that were doing um, film film music composition. In fact, Berkeley in Boston was one of the only undergrad programs that I knew about. Um, and fun little tidbit, mm-hmm. I did get accepted into that program and it was my first choice. Yes. <laughs> um, JU was not my first choice. Um, but, uh, financial reasons forced, uh, not, not that JU was any, was all that cheap, <laughs> but right. there were scholarships that were being, that I was able to have access to. And so I think it turned out great. Um, but that's kind of like how I decided that I wanted to, or, you know, just deciding that I wanted to do film music and, and it was kind of that and songwriting, you know, at the same time, really. Yeah. Um, you know, I was, I too was, I never applied. I was looking at Berkeley. Um, you know, I was, I was considering film music all the way, but, uh, somebody, and it could, it probably was Dr. Shermer. I, but I don't remember who told me they strongly advised that for my undergraduate degree, I got, general music composition that I kind of learned the tools of the trade. And that did come in handy because when I went to school of the arts, I can say that they, um, now I had a very good class in jazz orchestration, which I I never had at JU. And and this was by, you know, I, I really learned some things from that. And of course we had a music technology class, but everything else was film intensive. And I, I did not learn anything new about the craft, you know, from music instruction there. I learned how to take what I knew and apply it to film. But, um, you know, J.U. gave me such a good background in just understanding how composition works. And so that that is advice that, we, you know, if people ask me, you know, should I go straight in to films, you know, studying film composition? Because there's quite a few schools now, you know, that will do that. You know, if, if if you're like 100% sure or even 99.9% sure that's what you want to do, fine. Um, if there's a little bit of doubt, though, it's not a bad idea to just have that solid background. Because so my life has um, gone more toward music theater. I do a lot more with with that. I, I've done some films, I, um, you know, mostly short films and a few independents, but you know, I found kind of more of my calling of being uh, kind of an arranger working with writers and, you know, which includes creating the underscore, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. for some musical theater. And it's a different set of, I mean, it's, it's, it's different in a lot of ways, but it's also the same. But what doesn't change is just the tools that you use for creating music. You know, you're just kind of fitting it into a different style. So, um, but it is nice then to focus, you know, to kind of figure out what you're going to do. So, so I was, I just always like to ask this when I get someone from, from JU, because between this podcast and my other one, I think you are my fourth, I think you're my fourth guest, but, um, I always like, like to ask, you know, maybe what's a single thing that you got out of JU that you find valuable to this day? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I, I will say that I, I think it, I think that it's really important. This is, and this is not, this is actually to tack on something that you had just talked about. 
I think it's, I think even, I think especially if you know that you want to be a film composer, I do think it's important to get a background in composition. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, you know, and that's, and that was really great about, about JU. And that's kind of what I, what I learned the most. Cause I, I think what I got the most out of JU was incidentally when I went back to JU. Mm-hmm. So now let me notice, I didn't go back in like in a very official way. I, I actually kind of went back as sort of an independent study. Mm-hmm. When I just, when I graduated, I, I'm, I'll admit I was a little burnout. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I had had, I'd taken five year, a five year course in, in four years and it was a little tough. And, um, and when I decided that I wanted to come out to Los Angeles and, and apply, or I wanted to apply to the University of Southern California's graduate program in film and television composing, I realized after looking at the website and everything that I was like at their website, I was like, gosh, these students are really, really good. Mm-hmm. And I didn't feel as though I was ready yet to, to apply. I didn't think that I was at the, the same caliber, the same level, not necessarily in, in, in all of the composition aspect of it, although that might have been true at the time, but also in the, in the being able to represent my ideas you know, they, they were, they had all these computer systems. They, they were clearly able to do all of their demos and everything. And so I went back to Jacksonville University and I studied with Dr. Shermer. I just audited his classes and I, I studied the same thing with Tony Steve. And I think there was another professor. I forget, who, I forget who it was actually, but I, I think that I studied with them and just said, can I, can I sit in their classes? Can I audit them? Can I, can we do like an independent study? Can I write some things and bring them to you and just, and pay you for private lessons? And I think what was great about JU is that there was the opportunity to do that probably in the school you were talking about. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I think you would have had to have gone through very official channels. And this one was like, all I had to do was talk to Dr. Shermer and talk to Tony, Steve, and just say, can I do this? And they're like, absolutely. So there was that freedom, kind of what you were saying. There was that freedom to really, to really do that and go back and and really study and figure out how, you know, how um, I was going to put this application together. And I think that's the biggest thing, but I, I did want to say back, back what I was saying before that I do think it's important to study the craft of composition because I consider myself first and foremost, a composer and then a film composer. Yeah. And I say that because I personally think that that's a way that that's a really great way for any film composer or many film composers to look at it because the, the craft of writing to picture and writing in the industry doesn't have a whole lot to do with composition. Of course mm-hmm. it does, but it's not the bulk of it. The, the bulk of it is writing, writing something within parameters that you don't get to set. Time parameters and budget parameters and lots of cooks in the kitchen parameters, dramatic parameters, like all kinds of things that have nothing to do with the rules of composition or, you know, the, the, the rules of tonality or the, like that kind of thing. And it's, so it's not even a matter of, oh, you got to know the rules to break them. Oh, well, that's, that's, that can be something, but I just think it's the craft of writing to picture is a completely separate craft and a, a separate skill set than, than knowing your shit when it comes to composition, you yeah. know, when it comes to crafting music, you know, Which, and I'm not saying one is harder or better or easier than the other. I'm saying they're two, you know, separate layers of profession 
Um, and I, and I take mine seriously. It, it, it is an art profession, but it's like, you know, anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's all to say, like, this is, this is something that I think was started, you know, in, at JU, you know, started in, in that, in learning that skill set of, of crafting music. Right. Well, I full, yeah, fully agree. Um, and, and again, you know, just kind of back to the, and, and this is, you know, I, not to just be all glowing on Ju, I do have fond memories as as do you, but it the experience that you get at Ju is kind of my philosophy for this for this podcast, and that is that you you really should not pigeonhole your your studies and your musicianship. It's like I think you know we talk about those those method courses, you know the woodwind methods and percussion and strings. Oh doing all that really helped me. It's like, it helped me understand, ah, I can't just go to the piano and write what I think a clarinetist would play. I've got to think about what this is yeah. like and, and, uh, and what's going on in the embouchure. Right? So I can think about that type of stuff. Um, and then also, you know, I want to get some practice conducting so I can write for the orchestra and the wind ensemble and the, and the, and the chamber singers and, uh, get permission to conduct the premieres. And, um, and that's, you know, that's really all you have, all you have to do. You don't have these official channels to go through. So, so yeah, I always encourage everybody, you know, if you have opportunities and, and, and sometimes those opportunities happen, um, if you'll go a little bit lower in terms of like the expectations of the musician. So like community orchestras, that would be a great place to, kind of, first of all, learn how to write music that they can play, <laughs> you know, because it's a lot easier to just write down whatever you want. You know, I mean, I, uh, there was a, did you know James Jenkins, uh, played tuba instructor? He also played principal okay. for the jazz. So, well, he asked me to write him a piece one time for him and Ken Every, uh, on percussion. And, and he just said, here's the lowest note I can play. Here's the highest note I can play. Have fun in between. And I'm like, that's great. I also wrote a piece for tuba for one of the students, and I had to, I had to think a little bit about that. It's like, um, you know, what are, what's what's easy, what's hard, and you know, sometimes you get it wrong. So it's it's a good little training ground. If you and can. you'd be you'd be surprised how many film composers do not know that. Then yeah. they get in front of an orchestra on a deadline on a budget. And there are notes that are not playable. Yeah. <laughs> and why is that? Because they, you know, they're not, they weren't taking the time to learn the, the found, I don't want to say the foundation, the fundamentals. It's like learn the craft of, of <laughs> making, of like, you know, building music and writing music for an orchestra. Exactly. Um, but I, but I will say this, I will say, and this is something that I've actually learned recently in the past several years that, that I, that I heard and then I realized it probably would have been helpful for me to know a long time ago. And so I offer that to your listeners now, which is study what inspires you, you know, like it, it's not, believe it or not, it's not always necessary to study the great composers who are no longer with us. Of course it is. Uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, we should all learn from, you know, our, our founding forefathers of music. Absolutely. But if it's not what inspires you, don't start there, you know, start with what inspires you. And if it's a rock song and if it's like, or, or 
uh, you know, a John Williams score, although he's definitely someone we should all study. But you know what I'm saying? But if, if, if it's something that, you know, maybe it's not even something that you would think is like, you know, music to be learned from, like Metallica or something, but like, I don't know. I mean, these guys are musicians. I mean, it's, it's, there's some, there's some really, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of stuff to learn. I would say go for what inspires you and dissect it. Get your hands on the music, dissect it, just listen to it and figure out why you like it. Sit down at the piano and sound it out. Figure out why you like it, dissect it. And then from there, that will lead you to something else that inspires you. And then and then you might even find your way back to the, you know, the the, the great composers that have come before us. But I think it's really important to study what actually inspires you and it doesn't have to be the stuffy train formal training that you and I went through. Right. Um, I haven't, yeah. uh, I don't, I've never mentioned this on this podcast. Uh, so I, um, I teach piano, but I also teach composition independently. Uh, and I give all of my composition students an exercise. It was actually something I did for myself about well, time is weird, you know, when you get to a certain age. So I want to say like 10 or 15. It was probably 20 years ago. <laughs> and and that was when I was kind of in a rut creatively. I, I thought like, I, I don't know what my voice is. You know, I feel like I'm imitating too many other composers and so forth. So I got this idea to not think about what composers do I like, but what is it about their music that I like, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and... I started writing things down and I, and I thought about everything. I thought about like some certain heavy metal bands that I like and some certain jazz artists that I like. What are the, what are the qualities, you know, either harmonically or with the instrumentation? What is it that, that makes me go, wow, when I hear that song? And it might be like, um, I love suspensions in the alto part of choruses. You know, I just love that four, three suspension anytime I can hear it. So I wrote mm-hmm. that down um, I wrote, you know, I love loud, dissonant brass. Let's put that on the list, you know, um, and, uh, funky bass sounds. I like that. I'll put that on the list and came up with a list of about 38, 39 things. And I've tried to pare it down over the years, but, um, I just said, whenever I write a piece of music, I'm going to get that list out and make sure at least three of those things are on there. So it's like pulling your seasonings, you know, from the kitchen mm-hmm. and yeah. you'll come up with something new, but you'll know that it's, it's stuff that attracts you to music and you're pulling it off that list. And, and when you start thinking about it that way, you're, you know, I'm no longer, uh, so it's kind of funny. One, one of the, uh, one of the things that you have done is uh, gremlins secret secrets of the Mogwai. Am I saying that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, the first band piece I ever wrote in, in high school I had this theme that I just loved. And maybe a year later, I was re-watching Gremlins 2, the new batch, music by Jerry Goldsmith. And there's a there's a solo trumpet that plays that theme toward the end. And I was like, I can't believe this. I, I stole it note for note. <laughs> <laughs> it was not something I created. It was subliminal. And that's when I, I've learned over the years that inspiration that just hits you that you got to write it out is probably mm-hmm. something you've heard before <laughs> it's like there's nothing new under the sun yeah you know, <laughs> it's like i feel much better if i'm kind of struggling uh, let's do that uh, let's erase it now let's do this <laughs> yeah but yeah. yeah it's just kind of a little funny coincidence so uh we can go out of order i mentioned that score i was listening to it a little bit uh this week and uh 
thought she did a great job of capturing some Jerry Goldsmith playfulness that he had in the movies. And I noticed you also uh, have kind of your own version of the gremlin rag. And that's one of three, if I counted right, that's one of three series that you've done this year. You also did Kung Fu and Riverdale. Riverdale, Kung Fu, um, based on a true story, Gremlins, and gosh, there was a fifth one in there at some point. Or maybe I just meant, maybe I already mentioned five. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, yeah, and like two of those are not your first season. And Found, and Found. That oh. one's on right now, airing on NBC, yeah. Nice. We're, I want to come back to those. What got you going in your career? Like what, what are... Uh, like it, it may be more than one key moment. What was the first key moment to kind of getting your first opportunity to score a film outside of school? Outside of school. Um, well, I, I mean, I, I, there was a, when you say outside of school, I mean, there were, I, my first contacts were, were other former students. Right. So even though, you know, there, there was one, um, film that I, I had done, it was not in school. Neither of us were students anymore, but she, I had met her in school. And so she was making a documentary and that was one of the, one of the first films I think that I had done that was, I don't, I don't know if it was one of the first ones after I graduated, but it was the first one of note that actually went far for her. It didn't necessarily go far for me. It was actually shortlisted for the Oscars in, in 2017. And it was, um, not the music, but the, but the film, the film itself. And so I, um, but I, but I'd been out of school for a long time, actually, now that I say that. I'm sorry, now which school was it we were talking about? University of Southern California. Okay. Yeah. And so, but that, that was, yeah. So I actually, I'd done multiple, I'd done a bunch of films before then, but a lot of them were shorts. Um, But, but probably the, probably the question that we're, you know, I'm really asking is like, well, what kind of, maybe, maybe even what turned the corner um, I don't know, but I mean, I, I started as an assistant to Walter Murphy, who writes the music for Family Guy and American Dad, and um, I didn't have a chance to write for him because he he writes everything himself. But it gave me a really, really good uh, foundation in how to work with live musicians. I was going to the, the the Fox or Sony or Warner Brothers scoring stages every week, at least once a week, sometimes twice a week, because he just had that many recording sessions going. And I was, it was really amazing to watch his process to see how he would, he would write the things beforehand, his process of, which I helped with preparing the sessions for the live recordings. And then we were at live recordings and I could see, you know, his whole process. And, and again, how to work with musicians, how to work within the time strains of like, this is all we have to record. We have this much music, this much time, it's got to get done. You've got to get the performance that you want. Um, and I would say that that was, that was my first kind of like professional job that was cert, you know, a, above my league or out of my league as it were. And the reason I say it that way is because I feel like every other project that I was getting for myself was more like in my league. It's, it's the, it's the thing that like these, these are my contacts and my network. And this is kind of what I'm ready to do. But working for Walter was out of my league, you know, kind of thing. Um, while I was at university of Southern California, I had 
met uh, and stayed in contact with one of the advisors there, Blake Neely. Mm -hmm. And he is um, a really great composer that many of your listeners might might know. Um, he does a lot of film. He does. He's probably more known right now for his television music uh, or his television work. And um, I just stayed, stayed in contact with him. And that was when I was able to uh, turn the corner, as it were, when he started about four shows in one year mm -hmm. and really wanted to put a team together of people to help him uh, create some of the sounds and, and write, write some of the music. And um, from there, it was, you know, kind of the launching point in, in, in my career in terms of visibility. Um, but, you know, I want to say also to your listeners who, especially ones who are starting out in the business and wanting to get in the business, you know, I was doing lots of my own projects before that. Mm -hmm. I would say that there are no projects that anybody's heard of, <laughs> you know, or very, you know, that kind of thing. But they were, it was a, a great way to, you know, I think it's important. You can work for someone else. You can, you can, you know, write music at a higher level under someone else's supervision. And I think that's a really, really excellent way to get better at anything. Getting back to what you were saying, David, about like, imitation mm -hmm. imitation is the way that we all learn it and that that's the case from like when we're kids how do we learn to walk we watch our parents do it we watch our caretakers walk you know we learn how to talk by listening to other people who are talking so imitation is really the only way to learn in my opinion and then to experiment you know imitation experimentation and then, you know, so there's nothing wrong with that, you know, and, and but I think that's another reason why it's important to be working in your league where you can, let's say, apply the things that you're learning and then working above your league or out of your league where you're sort of learning those new things that like, you know, like there's no way I could have gotten, you know, I could I could have done, you know, when I first started working with Blake, there's no way I could have done those things, you know, you know, then if I hadn't had some of his some of his, you know, supervision and, and, and mentorship, as it were, the things that I'm doing now, there's no way I could have done them even five years ago, you know? So it's, right. it's an important stepping, stepping stone for, for, for that way. But yeah, I mean, a lot of those early projects were contacts from students that I had met who were then, you know, now becoming their, well, then becoming their own filmmakers and, you know, just sort of learning my own techniques for doing things. And then I started writing for Blake Neely and then, um, you know, you gain more visibility, you gain more experience, and then you get an agent, and then you can start to have, you know, have those projects come your way as well. I don't know if it was your first kind of really big project, but you you came to my radar professionally uh, with your work on Supergirl. Was that maybe mm -hmm. your first big one, or did you have anything yeah. before that? That was probably that was that was probably the first one of note, and my and I and I worked on it. My name was never on it. That was all Blake, but um, and he he did have another co-writer on it. But mm -hmm. but it was but that was that same year that I started working, um, with him, and uh, sort of Supergirl, um, Legends of Tomorrow, which was another DC superhero show, mm -hmm. um, and then he and I actually went on to do Riverdale and. Another Bat, sort of Batwoman was that one? Or? Batwoman was one yeah. that we did together, and and you know, so it was a. I kind of hung around in the superhero world for for a little bit. So, um, as someone who's never, uh, one thing I've never done, I've never collaborated as a composer. I've been the arranger for other composers. I've been the solo composer, but I've never, you know, actually co-composed anything. So I'm always interested 
and what collaboration is like? Because I know it's different for everybody. So how do you and Blake work together? We'll just take River Riverdale, for example. Uh, have, most recent season, we'll just keep it uh, keep it yeah. near. Yeah, so well, I mean... I mean, with something with something like Riverdale, and, and Blake and I would, you know, because now Riverdale is done, so we don't we don't actually work together anymore. But what you know, it's a little bit different with him, I think, because um, you know the some some of, well Riverdale was something that he had actually started himself. I, I had started it with him, but it was still him, you know, designing a lot of the sound, and I, I designed some of the things. But a lot of us, you know, we we would watch the episodes together, and we would watch them often, oftentimes in a spotting session with the showrunner or producers, and talk about certain themes and talk about like, oh yeah, we we really should put the theme here and do the thing, you know, you know, um, make sure we bring out this, this idea a little bit more. We, or, you know, and that kind of thing. We, we talk about the overarching thing, like really bring out the horror or really bring out the love interest, that kind of thing. And so Blake and I would, um, we ended up oftentimes taking different storylines. We, we would both sort of gravitate towards different characters. And so like on, even on Batwoman too, it's like, well, I kind of really gravitated towards Alice and he, he was going to take Batwoman. So, you know, and then we, from there, we would sometimes we would just trade off in, in certain ways and, and that kind of thing. So we would kind of go away in our own rooms and, you know, use our themes that we'd already created and just, you know, write the scenes and, and come together and then sit. And sometimes we go through them together and sit there and like, Oh, that's really great. I love what you did. Oh, I love what you did. You know, and then even on the crossovers, when we had all like the Supergirl, Batwoman, Arrow, and the whole Arrowverse crossovers, mm-hmm. uh, and there were a couple other composers involved with that too. Um, you know, certainly for Arrow and the Flash, I I wasn't really working on those shows, so I didn't always know the different themes. So I would chat over to Blake or chat over to one of his other composers and say, "Gosh, what's uh." what's Deathstroke's theme, you know? And they'll say, oh, okay, here, you know, come over and just get, you know, here, I wrote out, I wrote it out in a piece of paper and or, or take a look at this uh, this cue in our in our library and you can get a good statement. About 30 seconds in, you can get the statement of that theme and I go listen to it and I go, oh, okay. And then we take each other's themes um, or sometimes even, even in, we had, well, we had matching systems at the time. So we would, um, sometimes I would just pull in you know, in logic, I would pull in some of the programming and some of the the MIDI information so that I could get the exact exactly the right notes or exactly the right timing or, you know, the meter metering or something like that. So it was it was a great you know techno technologically sound way of of having that continuity and consistency. So it was that kind of collaboration. I we we never we never did like the Rodgers and Hammerstein type of thing where we were like sit in the same room and like, you know, somebody plays the piano, someone plays the left hand, and someone plays the right hand. We never did stuff like that, but we'd, we we would create, you know, in our own rooms, we would but we would talk about things first, come together, play our stuff for every for each other and then you know, talk about uh, if we felt something needed changing or addressing or adjusting, something like that. Um, so as you said, it's different for everybody, but it yeah. was for us, it was a lot of talking beforehand, writing by ourselves and then talking again after. Yeah, I think the thing that, that intrigues me the most is that, you know, you want it to sound like one person wrote it, you know, in the end, you want it to sound like it's coming from one team and and so forth. And I, I think like I've known a lot of composers and we don't write anything you know, our, our personal styles are nothing alike. So finding that, you know, kind of 
working sound <laughs> is has got to yeah. be a little bit of a or challenge. Like, or like that, pod, like that, that, that handshake, right? Where it's like yeah. each person can kind of have their own sound, but when you put it together, it really, it really, yeah. you know, fits in. But but therein lies a, a skill set also in the film music industry, where some where when you're doing additional writing for another composer, part of your job is to fit in with the sound that they've already created for a show. Um, so it's not your own agenda, you know, kind of thing. So that was, that's, that's also, that was, that was part of the, part of the, the skill set of it, part of the job as it were. Right. Let's come back to Gremlin's Secret of the Mogwai. Um, maybe we'll just use that for an example. So I, I'd love to know, you know, is that, I feel like it sounds like you must have listened to some of the Jerry Goldsmith scores and kind of incorporated some of the bounciness, some of the playfulness, you know, uh, from those, uh, but, you know, maybe what were some of your influences, but also what I'd specifically like to know is, um, given that it's a season, I don't know how many episodes there are, there are but uh, there's, there's 10, 10 in the first season and then there actually is a second season, but it's airing next year. And just kind of go over what is the, you know, for, for the 10 episodes, what is your work? <laughs> what is your, what is your timeline? Like as far as like scoring, like, uh, do you have a quota do you, uh, of like certain number of episodes per week? Do, I've, I've heard before that it kind of all gets done up front, you know, nowadays before episode one's even released. Whereas like maybe decades in the past, it was like week by week by week, you know, when it was all live. Yeah. yeah. Not not decades in the past. I mean, up until uh, really, like we just had our strikes, <laughs> you know. I mean, and and even even just just before pandemic, and even and even since pandemic, there's been a lot of, uh, especially on network television, you know, where I would I would get an episode in, and then a week later, it's a week and a half later, it's on the air. Mm. It's on air. So I mean, it's 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 pretty brutal in that way. With with um, Gremlins, it was very different. I had a, a luxurious amount of time. Yeah. <laughs> um, I had a month, but for for about four to six weeks for each episode. But when you back that up, that was you know there, there was also recording, and that took a week, you know, to record it and mix it and deliver it. That that kind of thing, or you know, well, to prepare for it. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, to doing all the orchestration and the parts prep and then the recording and the mixing and then delivering. Um, so it was about somewhere between three to five, five weeks. Um, and then writing that, as you would know, writing that, you know, music that's that's very um, action, adventure, animation, fully orchestral. You know, it's not again, it's crafted music. It's not a, it's not quite as easy as some of the other um you know, other projects that I have don't, you know, they're just not as involved uh, musically, you know, yeah. and so, but, you know, that doesn't, for some people it's different. For some people, they find that kind of music very, very easy to write, you know. Um, but yeah, that was, it was about four to six week turnaround from each episode. And, and then you, and you are right. The, um, in this case, everything was done and then it aired. I don't think that was supposed to be the case, um, but our industry has gone through a lot of changes. There's been company and studio mergers. There's been strikes. There's been a pandemic. There's been all kinds. In fact, I was actually hired during the start of pandemic um, and worked on it for about three years before anything actually even came (laughs) Right. To, you know, like in terms of there was even an air date kind of, kind of mm. thing. So it's not always the case, but a lot of times it is. It is the case. Yeah. Nice. Um, 
I confess I haven't watched it. I've listened to your soundtrack, but okay. <laughs> uh, but it sounds like you know it has a flow that sounds like you probably were fairly careful with the spotting, you know. So just did, did, is is that the case? Did you spend like uh, you know because you know you know with cartoons especially that's the origin of Mickey Mousing, you know the whole tightly. You know, every every single fall has a harp gliss, you know, <laughs> and things like that. But I don't, yeah. I, I don't know that I, I don't know that it sounds like you did that. But uh, just curious if you spent a lot of time uh, in advance with the spotting sessions, or if it just kind of sounds that way. Um, I think yes, yeah. I mean, I mean, I, it, there, there was this. I mean, because I worked on it for such a long time with the with the showrunners and producers, it, which was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got we kind of got to learn. I got to learn you know, the shorthand of like what they were looking for. And, 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 but you know, it was, it was a great project because I, I got to do whatever I was really thinking and feeling. And, and it happened to be that what I was thinking and feeling seemed to work for them as well, you know? And I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, you know, I haven't done a whole lot of animation to be honest. So I don't know if all animation, or I can say, oh yeah, animation is really like this. And you have to, um, there was some, there was some Mickey Mousing, I suppose, but I, I, there were a lot of times where I really chose to play through things because the show was the show, you know, if, if you do, if you're, if, if you do watch it or any of your listeners do watch it, um, the show itself is not like a Saturday morning cartoon, you know, yeah. it, 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 it plays a lot more adult. It's, it's, it's very Amblin in that yeah. way. It's very Amblin. And, and, you know, and so because of that, there wasn't really a need for Mickey Mousing. There wasn't really um, an invitation to do any of that kind of Tom and Jerry, you know, yeah. uh, you know kind of thing. Although Tom and Jerry, there's, there's really no dialogue. There's not often time, you know, dialogue. So it's, so it didn't, the music didn't have to do that with it um mm-hmm. but yeah it's you know um i guess you know one of the things that i feel like i should mention is um you know you work in an industry that if i'm not mistaken it was 1979 maybe 1980 before the first woman had a solo credit on a feature film you know i mean that's and you know hollywood was around for many decades before then so I, I feel like I check in every now and then and it seems like it's getting better, but, you know, but not by like leaps and bounds, but you know, what, what is your, what's your experience being a woman in film industry? Do you find that you're having to work harder uh, still to this day or, you know, just what, what could you say about that? Yeah. I mean, I look, I think that every woman is having in every profession has to work harder than <laughs> to get the same, but, but without going there to, um, like the, in, the film music industry is difficult. It's difficult for anybody. It's yeah. difficult for, doesn't matter what you identify as it's, it's, it's a difficult one and because it's expensive because you have to supply your own computer system and your own materials. Um, if you're a wardrobe person. You don't have to supply your own sewing machines or your own bolts of fabric. In this case, I, I do, you know? Um, and it's also, you, you're not often making, especially when you're first starting out, you're not often making mo- enough money on one project to make your rent. So you have to work many different projects mm-hmm. in order to make it work. So it's, and, and also let's face it, we're putting art with commerce. And so that's very difficult emotionally and psychologically. So I think it's a difficult industry. I think now, I mean, as you know, 
yes, there, there's there's a lot more females going into the business. And so there's a lot more females who are, you know, visible. But I, I will say, though, you know, going back to our original conversation, and by the way, I do have a, um, I have to, I have a six o'clock, so I might have to wrap it up. Oh, sure. But going back to our original conversation, though, when I started JU, my entire four years there, I was the only female composer. Mm-hmm. So I do think some, now, and if anybody thinks back in their middle school days when, when instruments came, came to their school, like every girl played flute or every flute was played by a girl. Every drum was played by a guy and trumpet and saxophone fall somewhere, maybe, you know, somewhere there. Somewhere along the way between middle school, high school, college, women, in my experience, stopped pursuing the, the, the musician section, sector of it. You know what I'm saying? And then when I went to University of Southern California to grad school, I was one of two females so what I'm saying now is that if we wanted to see what I find interesting is that now when I look at the USC classes and I go back and talk to them pretty often, I see, wow, there's at least half of them are females. But then I see, um, then I see, you know, but, but where I started, there were like almost none going into the education system in terms of that. So to answer your question, how, what's my what's my experience? Um, yeah, I think I think I'm, I think I've had to work hard, but I think I've had to work just as hard as a lot of other people, to be honest. Because I'll tell you this: the people who are getting the majority of the jobs, or the people who are getting the majority of the jobs, those were the people who were already in it for ten years, twenty years. Yeah, you know, they happen to all be white guys. Yeah, <laughs> okay? that happens to be the case, but. Who was getting education? Who was coming out of the school system then? You know, now there's more females coming out of the school system, coming out, getting education, doing it. So there's going to be more visibility at some point. We're just going to see it slower because it takes time. Um, And nobody, I don't think anybody gets anywhere in their careers without somebody believing them. And, you know, I've had a lot of, you know, white straight guys believe in me. (laughs) So, so. You know, I pre- appreciate, you know, you, you were able to make your own path um, without going the route <laughs> that a lot of people have gone lately that have successful. And that is uh, a certain very popular composer with a big company that gets a lot of work. You know, it's like you you were able to connect with basically one composer and get the experience you needed. And, and of course you've done a lot of other things since then. So, um, I know you got to wrap up. So let me rapid fire last few questions. Uh, are there any projects going on that you can talk about and uh, where can people follow you? Um, project projects. I have, I do have something out now called found it's on NBC. It's a procedural. It's doing really well. It's really cool. Um, I've got a film that I'm working on now. I don't know when it will be out, so it'll be on Amazon. So I don't know if I can mention it, but, um, but yeah. And I know that, uh, one of the shows I did based on a true story does have a second season. Mm-hmm. Some, so we'll see if that, uh, we'll see if I get brought back for that. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> um, and, uh, Instagram. Okay. I'm barely on Facebook, but Instagram at Sherry Chung, Twitter at Sherry underscore Chung. Um, yeah. And I'm on iTunes and Spotify and my website, sherrychung.com. It's a little out of date, but maybe. <laughs> okay. 
Uh, yeah. All right. Well, it was it was great talking to you. Great to finally, you know, put a put the name with the face and, and so to speak. And thank you for thank you all those years ago. I finally get to thank you oh. for for taking my call and talking with me about about pursuing fil- uh, composition at Ju. I, I really appreciate it, and thanks so much for this opportunity, David. I really appreciate it. It's awesome. And that's going to wrap it up for episode number fifty one. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. If you did, I would be Really honored if you would be willing to share it with at least one other person. Share it social media, share it in an email or a text. And feel free to send me a message anywhere on social media or through my website at davidlanemusic.com if you have any thoughts or questions after listening to this interview. Okay, there's a few weeks left in this month. In order to help myself kind of with the busyness of December that comes from being a musician, but also just to help me to continue helping my wife get organized uh, in this house and to get it all set up so that it's nice and pristine for the new year. My plan is for the remaining Mondays of this month to release a truly very short episode each week that'll be just me and it'll be focused on just a single tool, just a single lesson, like a practice tip or something that addresses one of the other tools of music. So just kind of like a single bullet point <laughs> that I'm going to talk about. My, my goal is to, to keep those episodes under 10 minutes each and just to, to make sure that there's something out there that you can listen to and digest. And, uh, and, if you, and if it's nothing that you needed to learn, it's something you can share with someone else who might get some benefit from it. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Musician Toolkit That's going to wrap it up for episode number 51, and I'll be back with you again next week.